1987, Clive Barker changed the face of horror in a way that sent shockwaves through the industry and created a mythology that continues to fascinate and terrify. It also gave birth to a legend, an icon, and one of the new classics when it comes to the pantheon of horror films. I'm talking, of course, about Hellraiser and the Angel of Pain, Pinhead. The character became an obsession of many and made a lot of us take a long, hard look at how we felt about the lines and crossing them when it came to sexuality, spirituality, and horror. Beneath the pens and leather was actor Doug Bradley, whose iconic voice and talent would make the role his own. Bradley was born in Liverpool in 1954, and it was there where he befriended writer and director Clive Barker in secondary school, beginning a friendship and artistic collaboration that would continue to this day. Doug Bradley grew up in a time where he was baptized by the Red Gore of Hammer Studios and found himself a fan of actors like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Bradley would join Clive Barker in 1978 as part of the Dog Theatre Company, where he would play a lead role in numerous productions. The Forbidden and Salome was released on DVD as some of Barker's early film work and feature Bradley. Bradley's first major film role, though, would be, in fact, the lead Cenobite in Hellraiser. The film would be the beginning of a franchise which would rival other modern classics like Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween for the number of sequels, with Bradley playing the character of Pinhead a total of eight times over the years, putting him on the same level as legends like Christopher Lee and Robert England for playing a role for consecutive times on screen. Doug's experience with the character and the makeup involved in bringing Pinhead to life led him to actually getting a makeup assistant credit on some of the films as he grew so used to the process of applying and removing the prosthetics. This would no doubt help him years later when he wrote the book Behind the Mask of the Horror Actor, which is a history of movie monsters and the actors who brought them to the screen, as well as the many sorts of masks that were used in the roles. In his second appearance in Hellbound Hellraiser 2, we get to see Doug out of makeup as we got to see who Pinhead was before he became Hell's High Priest. He was a military man by the name of Elliot Spencer. In the film, Christy reminds Pinhead, as well as the other Cenobites, of who they were before their transformation of the flesh. Elliot still has his powers and helps Christy and Tiffany escape from the newly transformed Dr. Chanard, giving Doug the chance to be a hero and show a different side of the character. After Hellbound, Clive brought to the screen a hybrid of fantasy and horror in Nightbreed, one of the most unique and fantastic films of the 90s, and one that has since become a cult classic and whose fan base continues to grow. Doug played the spiritual leader of the breed named Lylesburg, with another amazing makeup prosthetic, with Clive writing and directing the film based off his story Cabal. Nightbreed, unfortunately, upon release, was a victim of a studio not really knowing what to do with a film that had the monsters as heroes and was a love story about a dead man and a living woman. The marketing campaign did an injustice to the amazing creature effects and the real story, instead making the movie look like a slasher film with more of an emphasis on the horror side of things, going so far as to basically ripping off the Bad Dreams movie poster design instead of showcasing the creatures that were the heart and soul of the movie. To add insult to that injury, the studio dubbed Lylesburg's voice without actually telling Doug, so in the original release, it isn't Doug Bradley you hear, but another actor with a German accent. When the Cabal cut was released in 2014, Bradley and some other actors recorded dialogue to be added back to the restored version. I want to thank you guys for watching Where in the Horror Are They Now? And ask that if you enjoy our shows, please subscribe to our channel, like this video, and click on the bell so you can be notified each time a new video goes up. And now, back to the show. Doug would appear in Motorhead's Hellraiser video as Pinhead in 1992, the same year of the third Hellraiser film release. Ironically, he'd also play a clergyman in Inspector Morris the following year. 
Doug Bradley's career showed his ability to inhabit not only the most insane horror films, but also the far more sedate types of British roles, appearing in the Oscar Wilde penned An Ideal Husband in 1999, directed by his Nightbreed co-star, Oliver Parker, who had portrayed Pelican. Doug would portray Pinhead one last time in 2005 for Hellraiser Hellworld, a direct-to-video release which took the Hellraiser mythos meta and involved online gamers who were playing an MMO set in the Hellraiser universe. The film would co-star Lance Henriksen as the evil host and would also co-star Carrie Payton of The Walking Dead and Superman himself, Henry Cavill. Doug would follow this with an entry into the Pumpkinhead films with Pumpkinhead Ashes to Ashes, where he's trying to stop the demon from killing people by, well, killing people. This would once again have Doug working alongside Lance Henriksen. Doug Bradley would actually become part of the Star Wars universe in 2014, as his iconic voice was used as part of the Star Wars The Old Republic online game as, of course, the Sith Emperor. He'd also join some other genre favorites as the Envoy in the animated Howard Lovecraft series, along with Jeffrey Combs, Mark Hamill, and Christopher Plummer, starting in 2016 and appearing in all three films. Doug and his wife, Steph, created a hub for all of Doug's work with DougBradley.com. Doug started creating, along with some familiar faces like Robert England and Jeffrey Combs, the Spine Chillers audiobooks, which had the horror legends reading the works of the godfathers of horror, such as Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft. Since then, Doug has been contributing to his online channel, reading from classic works, and doing live streams. In 2018, Doug became part of Blackcraft Wrestling as the character known as The Preacher, which... That's just freaking awesome. There's nothing not awesome about this. In 2020, just as the world was starting to go into shutdown mode, Doug was diagnosed with colon cancer. Doug kicked cancer's ass, as you would expect the master of hell would, and thankfully he's still cancer-free as of today. Doug Bradley continues to create and walk the darkened halls of horror. He's the voice of the narrator for the United States of Horror, which is currently filming its second and third chapters, an anthology that features, well, a horror story from each state in the U.S. He's also part of the star-studded cast of The Barn Part 2, the sequel to the indie horror flick The Barn, and co-starring Linnea Quigley, Joe Bob Briggs, aka John Bloom, and Diana Prince, aka Darcy the Mail Girl. Doug Bradley has become a legend in the hearts and minds of horror fans who have, quite poetically, given their flesh in his name. He's displayed in ink and art around the world, and he's quite comfortable in the realms of the terrifying, being a fan himself. He's a natural, actually, having never taken acting lessons, and as far as I can see, doesn't really need them. He's done pretty well, don't you think? Doug Bradley is part of that pantheon of horror, the new breed, if you will, walking in the bloody footsteps of actors like Christopher Lee, who, with just the sound of his voice, can send a cold shiver of fear along your flesh right before he tears it off. We'll tear your soul apart. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, sir. I totally appreciate it. I think you're going to really like what we do with this. Um, well, uh, let me be the judge of that. <laughs> <laughs> I I will. You're you're very good at judging. <laughs> we we know that. <laughs> Um, so well, you uh, you have um you have a busy room to say that I this is kind of a representation of what it's like in my brain. And you're over here on a couple of pairs of socks that I have on oh, display. I, I, I see that. <laughs> I see that. Nice. 
freshly ne- washed, I, I hope. Oh, never worn. I would not okay. soil your, your image with, with my feet. <laughs> I wouldn't but, soil my feet with my image. The, it was a true, <laughs> as you will. Um, thank you so much again. I really, really appreciate it. I'm very excited Pleasure. about having another icon on um, the, uh, I'm just going to start because I have a ton of questions for you, and I know you have mm. limited time. Um, so my first question is: You've been acting for a while now, and I'm curious what was <laughs> what, what what was the first spark that uh, made you want to go and be an actor, and what attracted you to the theater uh, specifically? Wow, um, it was a long, slow process for me, and um, uh, if I if I can go back to one place, it it's a very unlikely origin, maybe. I don't know whether you're familiar with the um, the uh, British tradition of pantomime. Yes. Right. Uh, I, I, in telling this, this, I, I often have to explain to American audiences exactly what this strange beast pantomime is. <laughs> Basically, a Christmas entertainment, uh, usually based on uh nursery rhymes or folk tales or robin hood or something like that and it's a it's a peculiar mixture it's aimed at children it's comedic it will have musical acts in it in the in the early 1960s when i was first seeing it even sometimes pop groups uh, uh dance routines songs there was always the tradition of the dame who was who was the great blousy woman, usually the mother-in-law or something <laughs> like that, was always played by a man. Um, and indeed, I I have I have essayed uh, the pantomime dame, always known as <laughs> dame in pantomime, uh, myself on one occasion, a uh, wonderful lady by the name of Dame Sadie Spangle. Uh, <laughs> that was in the mid-1980s. Uh, um, and the I always have to struggle to make sure I've got this. The, the right way around, but the, the the principal the principal girl was an actress playing a boy who was falling in love with a girl. I, if I've, I'm not even convinced I've got that the right way around, but something like that. So it's this curious mixture of cross dressing and uh, um, children's entertainment, and inevitably the dame would. The, the dame's material would get a little blue, you know, mm-hmm. because parents were with their children and there was a <laughs> lot of, lot of, you know, rib nudging towards the parents um, in, in a lot of the, the dame's uh, material. This is a long way round to saying that I always used to get taken to the pantomime uh, when I was, um, when I was a boy. Uh, we'd go as a family to the Empire Theatre in Liverpool, which was where I was born and raised in England. Um, and this one year, I think it was Mother Goose. <laughs> um, it starred two very, very well-known names in English, uh, British light entertainment and comedy who may not be known to American audiences so much, Bruce Forsyth uh, and Norman Wisdom, who actually appeared in, he made quite a few films, but very English films. The names sound very familiar, actually, uh, especially Forsyth. I'm trying to think of how I know that. (laughs) 
Well, he came over here at one point to try and because he was a strange, very English kind of entertainer. He was uh, he introduced programs. He he latterly he introduced um, uh, Strictly Come Dancing, which was the 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 UK version of Dancing with the Stars. Mm-hmm. He was the introducer on that, but he was a singer. He was a he was a tap dancer, a, a comedian, a, a game show host, all round entertainer, and he did come over to America at one point to try and make his name as a as a singer and dancer, and worked with Sammy Davis Jr. for a while. Wow. Said he was he was hugely impressed by his abilities, but um, Bruce Forsyth and Norman Wisdom were playing cricket. Now there's there's another English. <laughs> And I'm not even going to try and take it. This is a very British story. I love it. <laughs> it is. It is. So, which involved, I can't remember which way around it was, uh, one of them standing at one side of the stage with a cricket bat and the other at the other side of the stage with a bag, with a, a bucket full of small bags of candy. And he was tossing the bags of candy across the stage. So let's say it's Norman Wisdom tossing bags of candy across the stage to Bruce Forsyth, who would, who was batting them out into the audience uh, with his cricket bat to the children. I'm probably seven, something like that. And I have a very clear memory of sitting in the audience thinking that this looked like the best fun in the world and slightly disbelieving that people could actually be allowed apparently to make a living out of doing this. Um, That's the first time that I consciously remember thinking that would be fun to do. And acting was always something that I did. If it was available to be done, I did it. And that led to um, really the day that changed my life, which was the, the day that at uh, uh, Quarry Bank sco- uh, High School in Liverpool, um, I got cast in the school play. I think, I, think, I think this is 1969 now, so I'm 14, I get 14, 15. I was cast in the school play, which I was thrilled about, and went along to my first rehearsal, uh, you know, where I met my other cast members, which included uh, a fellow by the name of Clive Barker, uh, which is why I call it the day that changed my life, because everything really followed from that moment. Clive was already... Uh, writing, directing, starring in, and hand-drawing the posters for his own plays uh, at Quarry. And I had been to see one of them independently before I, you know, even knew him properly. Uh, And I I got involved in in, in another production that we were doing at school. And then after school and university, we started doing theatre in Liverpool. Um, Very independent, very homemade theatre, by degrees, we moved to London. By the end of the 1970s, uh, having been a mime troupe briefly in the mid-1970s, we'd, we'd started talking again, had moved <laughs> down to London and formed a theatre company called The Dog Company, 
And I think really the penny dropped for me. We were doing uh, a production. It's it's my favorite of Clive's plays, uh, uh, The History of the Devil. These plays are all published now. And I, I think certainly The History of the Devil has been performed independent, produced independently and performed here in the States now. And I was playing The Devil, which was by far and away the most challenging thing I'd undertaken at that point. It's a huge part, barely off stage for the entire duration of the play. And I was just having the most exciting and the most rewarding time of my career. And we were up at the Edinburgh Festival in, I think we're now 19, 1981. Uh, and we were doing extremely well, which isn't easy to do on the fringe in Edinburgh because there's so much going on. It's, it's hard to convince audiences that they should be coming to your production as opposed to somebody else's. And even though we have, we, certainly the history of the devil is an interesting title. I'd go and see that if I knew nothing else about <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. We were not making life easy for ourselves. We were an unknown theatre company with unknown actors performing plays by an unknown writer. Uh, but we were doing extremely well. And I think somewhere during that run, we were there for something like three weeks, I think. And that was the first time I'd really had that experience as well, because we always toured. It was always one night here, one night there, one, one gig here, one gig there, you know. To be in one place at the same time, you know, going, even though we were actually performing in a school, converted school hall, but as it were going on stage, every night at the same time to do this role again was to me was was nirvana it was you know it was just oh this <laughs> this is you know and at some point during that i thought i mean by now apart from anything else i'm kind of 26 27 you know it's time i was deciding what i was going to do when i grew up um, uh, I'm still still having that conversation with myself, by the way. I haven't really made <laughs> my mind up yet. Um, but it was somewhere in there that I thought, it looks as though I'm going to be doing this. And it was kind of partly because I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't really any good at anything else. Um, and nothing else gave me the fulfillment that this did. And I was arrogant enough to think that I, you know, I, I could do this as well as most and better than some. Um, uh, so, so on I went and I, I, I guess even at, even at that slightly more advanced age, I could at that point have decided to go to drama school. And in some ways I regret that I didn't, but uh, that, that decade of work, of theatre work, experimental, independent theatre work, to me was my theatre school. You know, well, I, I learned on the job. I'd made my mistakes in public. Um, <laughs> and uh, again, if it's a touch of arrogance, I don't care. But I, I, didn't, I didn't want to go and have somebody else tell me how they thought I ought to be doing it. So I've, I've never had an acting lesson in my life. That's amazing. And some would, some would say it shows. <laughs> well, I would say it shows that you've immediately found what you were supposed to do in your life and your calling. I mean, that's I really so. what I take from it. I think um, 
I don't one, have any doubts about it. Let me put it that way. I, I think you've done pretty well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, you, you, in the story, you talked about working with Clive and starting the dog company. Um, mm. I was curious how it was, how you met and how you kind of grew up together. And also I'm kind of part of that where your love of the horror genre started was that influenced by knowing clive or was that something that you kind of had already no it it was already there um uh, uh as a boy it was ghosts for me i was obsessed by them i have no idea why other than that i know i was terrified of the concept of death um uh, but I was I was terrified of seeing them, and I wanted to see them. They scared the life out of me, but I couldn't get enough of them. Reading ghost stories or watching stuff on TV that you know was guaranteed to scare me. But um, I was going to do it anyway. Uh, one of the first movies I can remember really, really scaring me was The Innocents. Uh, directed by Jack Clayton, based on uh, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. I was delighted that when I, I watched it again as an adult, I realized part of the reason this movie made such an impression on me is that it's a brilliant film. Uh, it remains to this day one of my, I would say, one of my top five favorite films in or out of the genre. I think it's a, it's a magnificent piece of filmmaking such an ambiguous ending that yeah. I think I think you wouldn't be allowed to have these days and it, that kind of psychosexual element in the in Deborah Carr's character that opening scene between her and Michael Redgrave I didn't wouldn't have registered this as a kid but you watch that scene now and it's very deliberate and it's very unsettling and it it it's it's there i think to throw every moral compass adrift you know as michael michael redgrave's character is basically saying i want to hire you to be the governess to my children uh because i can't be, have them here with me in london because they they get in the way because i i want to screw my way around london <laughs> i can't do that with Very the kids nice. around that's effectively <laughs> what he's saying yep and built into that conversation is this kind of flirtatious relationship between him and Deborah Carr during the interview. It was particularly when when the 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 ghost of of the housekeeper Miss uh lost her name, doesn't matter. When she's <laughs> she's when Deborah Carr sees her sitting at the desk in the schoolroom and she's crying and then she disappears but she leaves a real tear on the slate. And all the scenes with her down down by the river. And I remember at the end of the movie going going upstairs to the bathroom to pee and having that halfway up, halfway down moment where I was very aware of the defensible space behind me that I couldn't control and what might be behind me that I couldn't see or might be coming up the stairs behind me. Yep. So the urge is to run up the stairs to get away from it, but I'm scared about what might be around the corner on the landing that I can't see. So I'm scared of running up the stairs and I'm kind of stranded halfway up, halfway down. Um, and then uh, making it to the bathroom and using the advantage that 
boys have, which is peeing <laughs> sideways onto the bowl with my back to the wall. So I, I you know, I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew there was nothing behind me. Defensive um, peeing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, so that was always there. And then in, I think I would, it would be around the same time, I think, that I would have been doing that school play, but uh, somewhere in, I think in the, God, I can't remember the precise time frame now, but um, when I was a teenager anyway, uh, Granada Television, which was the independent uh, television station in the northwest of England, they started showing the whole of Hammer's back catalogue. I think they called it Appointment with Fear. It came on at uh, after News at 10, which was the big flagship news program, finished at 10.30, and then on came the Hammer movie. And they, they went through the entire back catalogue. Wow. Which was my introduction to my hero in the genre, which is Peter Cushing and, you know, Cushing and Lee. And, uh, um, but so at, and at the same time, I'm, I'm meeting Clive. And of course he was, he was a huge horror fan. And, and, uh, you know, we, st I remember, you know, gang of us would all go and see the new horror films as they came out and then sit and analyze them for a long time. I'm curious. After. Um, this was your interest in ghosts, uh, because I've, I've learned over the a couple of last years, actually, they were doing some specials. Was it due to, uh, there's a tradition that I've heard that is in England where, in the UK, where you read ghost stories for Christmas. Did, was that something that you ever participated in, or was that something that you ever, uh, were I don't remember in? it being something I participated in, but it's certainly true. And I, um, why exactly that might be, uh, I don't know. I know that um, I, I think partly the tradition stems from M.R. James, who was a great 19th century author of, of, of ghost stories, scary stories, um, uh, titles like uh, A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, is, is maybe one of one of his best known. It's been made into, into a movie a couple of times. But the BBC used to do, sorry, he, he used to, he had a group of students around him. He was, um, was he the dean at a college in Cambridge, something like that, either right. Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, and he, I mean, he was like an he was like an eminent medieval scholar, considered one of one of the great authorities on English medieval history. And he kind of wrote his stories, which is what he's remembered for now, principally, you know, in his spare time. And he would read his new stories to his students approaching midnight on Christmas Eve. Right. Why exactly that was the case, <laughs> I don't know. And I think. I think somehow that tradition has carried forward. I remember, again, I think as a teenager, the BBC used to regularly put a, a dramatization of an M.R. James story on at Christmas, I, I, sometimes I, on Christmas night. I want to say I saw... Christmas Carol, of course, which takes us back to, to right. Dickinson and earlier, which is the great haunting Christmas story. 
I want to say I saw a special, uh, an episode of these MR James stories being told and, and Christopher Lee was playing MR James. It was wow. something, it was something he would be reading and then they would dramatize the, the story. Right. And right. I, I think I, I saw that. I may have dreamed it. <laughs> that sounds like something I would make up in my head. Sounds like a good dream. Oh, it was fantastic. <laughs> but um, kind of piggybacking off of that, you've recorded yeah. some amazing audiobooks uh, of these classic horror stories uh, you've done with Spine Chillers. You've done mm. a lot of Poe. You've had Robert England and Jeffrey Combs come on and, and do H.P. Yes. Uh, Lovecraft. Um, I was curious what you would think even today, we still go back to these stories and re-dramatize re them. We 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 go we we plunge in to find those nuggets of of just the greatness of them. What is you know what do you think makes these still endure today? And what's your favorite from these writers and why? Oh, that's a that's a big question, uh, <laughs> Jessica. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think I think you can you can you can take you can take the tradition in which they were writing as far back as you want to. Um, you know, you can you can take this back into native folk legends and myths. You can take it certainly into Greek mythology and 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 Hindu mythology. And the great mythologies of the world. Um, I think you can even take it into the Old Testament if you want to, and you will find these elements active always. And really, there isn't a major writer worth his salt or her salt who hasn't gone into this territory at some time. Shakespeare certainly did. Christopher Marlowe, Shakespeare's great contemporary, certainly did. Um, uh, and a lot of uh, Shakespeare's contemporaries did as well. Um, I think, I think to some extent, in terms of the short story, it, it may partly be the fact that they got there first. Nobody, nobody's really writing short stories. Uh, um, is it, it uh, Hoffenbach? I think at the at, in, in, in the early 19th century ahead of Poe, who I, I, I see sometimes being mentioned as, as the guy who's got forgotten in, in all of this history. And I keep thinking, um, I, I, have to, um, I have to go back and read him. I hope I'm remembering his name correctly, Hoffman something anyway. <laughs> um, uh, and then comes Poe who's, who's, you know, he, he wouldn't have been aware that he was doing it, but he he absolutely set the table for every horror writer who came after him. I think, um, you know, most of all of whom openly acknowledge uh, his influence, Lovecraft particularly, um, and Lovecraft again then casts his own shadow long across. Twentieth century <laughs> and and every writer who's 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 uh, who's followed him, um, uh, but the nineteenth century seems to have been a particularly uh, fertile time for uh, these stories and these writers, which is a, 
a blessing to me because uh, in terms of the Spine Chillers series, we we uh, we we could only look at at stories that were in the public domain <laughs> for financial reasons. So exactly. it was it was a blessing to us that it, that it was you know it was a well that we could keep going back to again and again. 19th century turning into the 20th century because you know there's uh lovecraft and 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 people that i never really got round to like algernon blackwood and one of my own personal favorites um uh which is uh, arthur macken uh we only recorded one of his stories uh the the bowman but i i've kind of moved the spine chillers uh thing forward now with my youtube channel where i'm continuing to do the same and i'm trying not to repeat um stories that i had already recorded for spine chillers though it's that's difficult to avoid a bit sometimes um and people want to hear it <laughs> you 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 asked me my favorite and uh my my my, my my favorite writer un, unashamedly is Poe. I just think he's brilliant. And spending spending time because I think I think we had a Poe story on everything, every single volume. I think you did. Spine Chillers, and that was thirteen volumes, um, and poems as well. Spending a lot of time that close to Poe's language increased my respect for him even more than it already was. He shifts his language to suit the story and even within stories. So a story like the fall of the house of Usher, uh, which is, which is written in his kind of high poetic Gothic style, he shifts the tenor of his language um, uh, partway through the story. And some of those, I mean, there are sentences in the fall of the house of Usher that are, that are like walking into a maze, you know, and you get, you get halfway in and there's a there's a clause within a clause within a clause within a clause and you're beginning to panic that you'll never find your way <laughs> out of this sentence to the to the full stop to the period um but then you come to my personal favorite of pose uh which is the telltale heart um it, it's it's so brief it's so short and the language is abrupt it's it's short sentences and it's almost monosyllabic um, and it's almost modern in its style of writing. It's not complicated language at all. Uh, and then you, you go from there to a story like um, Morella or, you know, where again, you're back, you're back in, in, in the high Gothic poetic style. Uh, I just, I mean, my admiration for him is is never ending, really. It's amazing. I, I, I absolutely, he's one of my favorites of all time, and I still need to make the pilgrimage to his grave. I, I really want to go visit his. I, where about are you based? I, I'm in Eugene, Oregon. So okay. I'm as far away from Edgar I, as you can get. Which I, I've, I've, I've been twice. It's fantastic uh, here. The to, rainy season has started. In, 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 in 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 westminster i'm sorry i meant i've been to to pose to both pose graves uh Aww. in uh in in the in the westminster cemetery in uh in 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 baltimore it's worth a visit oh, i want to uh, go so bad because um, of course he was originally buried around the back of the church 
um, and then uh, dug up and reburied where the, the memorial now stands. The statue. Near the, near the gates. Um, and I've also been twice to um, to the house in uh, in in Baltimore, uh, where he where he was very briefly with Virginia and uh, and Maria. Mm -hmm. um, uh, quite when, when he was when he was much younger. It's hard to talk about him as being younger, really, when he was only forty when he died. Right. Um, and I've also visited uh, the house in Philadelphia that he that he lived in for a period of time. I'd love uh, to go on a tour of that. I, it's it's a dream. At some point, when all this is over, I'm going <laughs> to go there, and I'm going that. to go. I will do this. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, and I know I'm, I'm probably going to lose you here pretty soon, but you've fully embraced the horror film world, which I absolutely admire. You've you've totally embraced it. What was the journey like for you for that? And you know, and for you as an actor within these horror roles, do you find the genre gives you a, a wider range that you can really let go and and do things that um, more other genres might restrict you in? Not really. I mean, to to uh, to be honest, I've never placed any restrictions on myself. If there have been any restrictions, there, there have been restrictions that other people have placed on me. Um, uh, I didn't I didn't become an actor with any specific ambition to 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 work in in horror movies. Um, and when when the when the dog company ended in 1982, my working relationship with Clive at that point had ended. So I was I was off doing provincial repertory theater up and down England. Very, very, you know, nothing, nothing at all like the material <laughs> that I'd been doing for the previous 10 years, uh, you know, working in, in partnership with Clive. So it was a very different experience for me. Um, and I, I had no clue that, that, you know, late in 1985, in the middle of a conversation about other things, Clive would quite casually say to me, oh, by the way, I'm trying to put together a, a low budget independent British horror movie. And I think there's a part in there for you, <laughs> to which I said, oh, cool, exciting. <laughs> anyway, what were we saying? And conversation moved on. <laughs> um, uh, so Hellraiser came, Hell, Hellraiser brought horror to me as an actor. I wasn't actively seeking it. Maybe I would have done subsequently, but because it, you know, the love of horror had never left me. Um, to, to, so it, it's, it's never been an issue for me. It's never been a problem for me. Let's put it that way, because I love the genre and, and I love being part of it. Um, uh, uh, so I've never, I've never fought shy of it in any sense. I've never worried about the idea of being pigeonholed. Um, uh, Boris Karloff, who's lurking over my shoulder I here. I see Robert Mitchum too. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, in Night of the Demon, uh, one of my favorite movies. Um, uh, Cushing's in there somewhere. I'm not sure where. Is he there? 
I think. I think that's yeah. I think that's him. He's yeah. he, oh, that's actually is that yeah that is Cushing. I have yeah. <laughs> I have Christopher Lee back here in about a couple. William Marshall is Blackula, and then yeah. over here Peter Peter Cushing as two as a good guy and a bad guy. I have him as Frankenstein, and I have him as Van Helsing on these two busts that right. Hammer produced. Right. And, <laughs> um, I have uh be back in a moment. <laughs> I love comparing collections. <laughs> oh yay! <laughs> I know what these I are. Have, that's I the one Peter I got. Peter and Christopher right right here. <laughs> that is that that's the bust. I actually got the last one they had at the right. booth at San Diego Comic-Con. The last one that they had of him. Um yeah, and, I got these at a convention. They were just sitting there and still in their boxes yeah and i i kind of i walked back past the booth and i went oh, <laughs> you fucking kidding me i know and they, and they were not expensive you can't get these things for love of money now really. yeah you can't um, you can't find them um i the one i really wish i'd gotten and 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 joe is going to be like why are they talking about this crap? <laughs> but, but i wish i'd gotten the ingrid pit they had her as countess sure. Drac uh, or actually it was was it it was either Countess Dracula or Camilla, but she just was it was glorious. And I you'll never find that now because they no. stopped making those. Oh, no, and I, I I wish I had the 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 uh Cushing as Van Helsing, but the 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 attention to detail is, is, is amazing, just fantastic. And it's so solidly made. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you could drop this from a height and it's and it's going to survive. They're they're wonderfully made. They're gorgeous. I wish they'd go um, back and do that, but where were we? What were we that, talking about? <laughs> we were talking about collectibles. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> there was a reason I was, yes, I, I was pointing to Boris Karloff because he said, in, in answer to the question about being typecast, and I don't think he really was because you can't, you can't, and I've said this in relation to myself as Pinhead, how do I get typecast as Pinhead? Right. That's absurd because, it, you know, it's a particular. No one, particular there's thing. no other character like that. It doesn't what I do to be Pinhead, what I look like to be Pinhead has nothing to do with any other character you can conceive of. So it's not there. And the same, I think, is true for Boris in relation to to the monster. My dear old monster, as as he, he called him uh, and said, I owe him everything. Um, and he said, if I if I'm typecast as an actor, I'm extremely lucky. Because you're working and because you're working. And, um, and he said, because it's like being it's like being a carpenter who's known for making a particular style of table. Oh, that's and beautiful. If you want that particular style of table, you go to that carpenter. That that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Um, so one thing I definitely wanted to get in and ask you about, if you can't tell from the garb, is Nightbreed is yes, quite possibly I, I, I'm going to, going to uh uh, mention your your excellent taste <laughs> yes and i love the hat <laughs> oh get out <laughs> fright rags i give them all my money um so i absolutely love nightbreed and i wanted to ask you about uh your character character of lylesburg and and mm. how you created that role and what it was like filming that uh movie because there's never been another like it it's it's basically the Avengers of monsters is how I look at it. And hmm. uh, I absolutely I drove an hour and a half when it came out to go see it. I still have my movie ticket 
the original mm. ticket. Uh, it was an experience for me and I loved the metaphor. And I wanted to ask you about that film specifically. Sure. Uh, so it came right on the heels of the, the first two Hellraiser movies. I mean, it was, it was quite a, it's a two and a half year period from starting to film Hellraiser, which was my first movie in the fall of 1986. And, and we're, we're at Pinewood in the spring of 1989, making Hellbound, so uh, making Nightbreed. So Hellraiser and Hellbound have happened and now we're, we're on to Nightbreed, which was planned to be the first of a trilogy. Mm because Clive was planning that Cabal would be the first of a trilogy of novels and he there would be an answering Nightbreed movie to each Cabal novel. Uh, students of Clive's career will know that he he often plans these massive epics and they, <laughs> they tend not to happen, <laughs> partly because his own mind is always, I've done that one, I want to go on to something else rather than, you know, the kind of uh, maybe monominded focus that would have been required to produce that trilogy of novels and make that trilogy of films, I think is in some ways, you know, not fundamentally his nature, his genius brain is always on to the next He's one. He's always creating. On to the next one. Um, I love Cabal. Uh, Nightbreed is a complicated story in some ways. For me personally, you know, it was it there was just that excitement that I'm doing another movie. This is crazy. You know, three years ago, I I wasn't I wasn't doing this. Now I'm you know I'm here. Um, it was slightly complicated because we had shot Hellbound at Pinewood. Now we were shooting Nightbreed at Pinewood, and a lot of the the crew were the same as it worked on Hellbound. Um, and the uh, special effects makeup crew, image animation, were the same people. Um, although I had a different makeup artist, Jeff Portas had worked on my makeup on Hellraiser and Hellbound. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have Mark Coulier, uh, now double Oscar winning Mark Coulier, doing uh, Lylesburg's makeup, which I think is a magnificent makeup. The problem for me was that every part of that journey and the makeup process to me was, was inextricably bound up with Pinhead. <clears throat> it was all part of my journey into the character and the working day and the performance. So on Nightbreed, I tended to, you know, a, um, alarm at three o'clock, get 3 a.m. picked up at 3:30 uh, uh, at the studio at 4 a.m. to get into the into the makeup chair to begin the appliance. And on on Nightbreed, it's exactly the same thing. I'm setting my alarm for three. I'm being picked up at 3:30 by the same driver in the <laughs> same car, and driving around the North Circular Road and out to Pine, Pinewood Studios. Um, to sit in the makeup chair with familiar faces around me. And although the Pinhead and Lylesburg makeups look very different, obviously, the makeup process is almost identical. 
and the smells of the glue and the paint and the latex and everything uh, to me was all saying pinhead it was it, it was emotionally inextricably bound with the process of playing pinhead so i it was it it was playing you know there was a degree of mind games i had to play with myself to wrench myself away away from from pinhead and focus on lylesburg but you know that's that's the job of acting um don't you confuse your characters you, you did a fantastic um, job but i i it, it, you it don't think about that i love that i love that kind of i mean i in in my own head moses was the kind of shorthand i had he was the lawgiver he was the one who would come down from the mountainside with the tablets and given 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 the the breed you know that this is this is how we do this um the the problem of course subsequently with my breed was it's not really a horror film i remember seeing you know that stephen king quote on the hellraiser poster i've seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. And, and I thought, wow, that is fantastic. That's wonderful that he's got that from, from King. Um, and I thought, you be careful because as fast as you try and push him into a pigeonhole marked horror, he'll be planning how he can escape out the back of it. Yep. Uh, and Nightbreed is really a pure fantasy movie more than it's a horror film. It's fundamentally a romance. It's a you know, it's it's a love story mm -hmm. uh, between a in 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 which the guy just happens to be dead, but <laughs> um, which is I, I always thought strangely precisely echoes the fundamental the the heart of the story in Hellraiser, another relationship between between a woman and a dead guy. Um, Welcome to the psychiatrist's chair, Mr. Barker. Um, uh, <laughs> um, no, there's nothing going on there. <laughs> nothing to see here. Um, uh, but that's what it was at its core. And it, I, to, to, to me, the movie that I, I had in my mind thinking about, about it, reading the script, preparing for it, talking to Clive, and when the, the first day I, I I walked onto that huge set with the with the, the the rope walkways. It was it was a big set. It was thrilling to 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 be on that set. Um, Fellini was what I kept thinking about. Uh, uh, Satyricon, particularly. Um, uh, but Clive was hot from horror. Yeah. hot from hellraiser i mean and fox wanted a horror film come hell or high water and they were determined to get one and uh uh you know clive fought them long and hard in la but uh they they screwed with the film so much in in uh in post-production the movie we shot at pinewood was a, a, an absolutely faithful almost uh page by page faithful adaptation of cabal and of course the fundamental idea in nightbreed is that the monsters are the good guys yeah the monsters exactly. want to be left alone 
to live in Midian under the cemetery. You know, you've you've got the renegade elements in, I guess, uh, Kinsky and and uh, Pelequin, yep. who have different ideas. But it, but basically, the breed were a peaceful lot, and the humans are the monsters. Yep. It's a familiar story. Uh, um, but but you know, the breed were the freaks and weirdos who just wanted to be left alone in peace and quiet to be freakish and weird. Uh, um, and I think they weren't really having that. So they, so a lot of breed stuff got reshot to kind of make them appear more aggressive and malevolent, malign, which they were never intended to be. Right. As weird as they might look, they were not particularly malign, I don't think. Um, uh, and you know, in the end, they even they even managed to kind of turn it into a slasher movie, and they they bring David Cronenberg's character to the center of the story. And it, it's not not a criticism of David at all, who did a great job, I thought. But um, uh, Decker's character, Decker in the in in the novel and the screenplay, he's really like an extraordinary kickstart to the plot. Um, uh, but because they they have this handle of um, Welcome to the psychiatrist chair, <laughs> the, the serial killing psychoanalyst. Um, uh, it all comes um, real circle. <laughs> uh, they wanted to move him to the center of the story so they could market it as a as a slasher, and they 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 screwed around with the editing so much, and then and then I got I got a phone call from somebody in LA saying telling me that uh, uh Lylesburg was going to be revoiced yeah and that when was you, a, i was really confused by that when i well, saw the i film. think i think what <laughs> they were saying to me they didn't say it in so many words i think what they were saying was nothing more complicated than we have to adr some of your lines if not all of my lines, but they'd have to ADR some of them maybe as you do normally because of noise on set or indistinct, excuse me, indistinct lines or whatever it may be. I think what they were saying was, we need to ADR your lines. I was, I was still living in London then, obviously. Uh, we're not about to uh, pay the money to fly you first class from London to LA, put you up in a hotel, pay you per diem, and you know, pay you a going rate to come into the studio. Well, I wouldn't have needed to do that. It would do, that would have been built into the contract. But they would have needed to fork out all that money uh, when they can get they can get somebody, you know, to drive half an hour down the road to come into the studio for a, a couple of hundred bucks. And speaking of and microphone, yeah. How or why Lylesburg acquired a German accent? I've never actually. <laughs> I've never found out the answer to that. And I, I, it's always at the back of my head to ask Clive about that. But to be honest, when I see him, you know, we have better things to talk about. Um, uh, um, but, you know, I think, I, think, I think some executive fell out of bed and bumped his head in the morning and thought, ah, Lylesburg, he's German. <laughs> It was a shock to me because I didn't know it was coming. So when I went to the film uh, to, to, to see the movie, uh, 
uh, and Lyles Lylesberg opens his mouth and he's you know it's, the, <laughs> it, some... it came as a bit of a shock. Let me put it that I, way. I, I was, also, I was... When, you, when you've lost your face, your voice becomes tremendously important to you in terms of exactly. your performance and to lose your voice as well. I kind of felt like I wasn't really watching me, you know. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I think it remains a movie like no other. And thank God we've 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 had the cabal cut, which has um, I think gone gone a gone a long way right there <laughs> towards um, towards uh, um, setting the record straight. Um, there was a director's cut that I do know, um, Dicky, who edited Hellraiser and Hellbound. I know that he edited um, Nightbreed and, and produced a director's cut. I always wondered whether that actually, whether that director's cut got butchered in the, in the re-editing or whether still to this day, somewhere in the basement or on a dusty shelf somewhere in, in uh, in LA sits a shelf marked Nightbreed Director's Cut. <laughs> Probably. Um, uh, like the but, arc. <laughs> but the has, has has put a lot of the record straight. There was a lot of stuff around the breed in the movie that just simply didn't make sense because of the way that they'd hacked the scenes around. And now, you get, you know, it's just simply a case sometimes of getting a bit of dialogue at the beginning of a scene put back in place. Oh, that's what they're talking about. Um, and I got my voice back. You did. <laughs> and I, I will tell you, it was one of the proudest moments of my life that I helped get that shown for the first time ever that we, oh. I got, I helped Mark get that, that shown at a con, the, the, the cabal cut before Which, it. Yes. Where, where was that? That was at Horror Hound Weekend. Um, yes. And I believe it was in the Indianapolis show. And that was yeah. when we had Clive come out. Right. And um, I, I cried a little bit at that because I'm like, this is, this is the movie that we've been wanting to see. And um, absolutely. I was, I, I was so happy to hear your voice coming out of him too, because I'm, when I saw that way back in I, 1989, 1990, um, I was like, I, I looked at him like, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like Doug Bradley. No. I was confused. I'm like, he's not German. <laughs> that's that's not his voice. His voice no, is it, uh, there was there was never never any point uh, in discussions with Clive that uh, that uh, a German accent ever came up, or as far as I'm aware, it ever um, ever crossed our our minds. Um, Somebody made that choice, but I don't know why or who. Yeah. It was very strange, but well, I and, I'm and, glad. Uh, we and well done you for, for playing your part in 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 bringing that by uh, hook by crook yeah. i was <laughs> when i found out mark had uh mark miller had found that and i uh we covered it apparently the whole time lying on a shelf somewhere in clive's yeah. office it doesn't surprise somewhere i've I, seen clive's yeah. office and I, it doesn't surprise me that that would have gotten uh, lost in there a lot of a lot of shelves and a lot of books and a lot of stuff binders yeah. Lots yeah. of binders. Uh, and, and, it, and to, 
to stress to people watching this, it wasn't that director's cut that I'm talking about, but it was it was a work print from uh, Pinewood, which is which is kind of an kind of an editing a loose editing progress. I think would be the best way to to uh, to describe it. Um, it certainly needed a lot of work on it to. Uh, it needed some love, but <laughs> it did. I'm it. glad they did it um so i i i've kept you a very long time That's i right. don't worry don't worry i i did want to ask you though because i know that you had a um you had your own fight with cancer over the last couple of years and you beat it mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. thank 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 whoever's listening um and i wanted to ask you because i'm a cancer survivor as well and okay. i've Good. there's and there has been it's not a fun time, <laughs> but there have been a lot of people talking about how fandom and, uh, you know, um, things to keep you motivated and going. And I was curious, was there anything that you kind of latched onto that helped you get through that in terms of, you know, like for me, it was Doctor Who and, and horror uh, films. Doctor Who and horror films got me through uh, three months of hell. Um, so right. I'm just curious um, if there was anything that kind of helped you get through that you. I, well, the first thing I have to say is that I, I got very lucky. I really did get very lucky. It was bowel cancer in my case. Yeah. I had had, you know, a few things down that end of my body that um, that didn't seem quite right in the second half of. Uh, what year are we in now? 21. 20, 21. They all 20. kind of run together now. <laughs> uh, 19. So I, enough that towards the end of the year, I went to my doctor who said, hmm, when was your last colonoscopy? And I said, I've never had one. Oh. And yeah. when his eyebrows had come down from the ceiling, because I'm 65 at that point, um, just turning 65, he said, oh, it'd be a good idea if we put that right so i got sent for what i thought was a routine colonoscopy i thought maybe i had ibs or colitis or something like that when the gastroenterologist came back in uh, as i was coming out of the anesthetic you know and he put the hand on my shoulder which at the should have alerted me that something was coming but at the time you know i was kind of groggy and hey hey we've done a colonoscopy that was great can i go home now um where's steph come on let's go uh and then slowly realized that he was telling even when he was you know saying we found something i'm thinking oh cool what do you find a lost tribe a what a, 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 chest of, a chest of treasure a dinosaur or two what, what what did you find down there and then realized what he was actually telling me um but so I, I you know and I, I bang the drum for this now since we're talking about this um i should have had colonoscopies at least 10 years earlier and on a regular basis thereafter so i was that idiot who didn't i am that idiot who only goes to the doctor when i have reason to think that something's broken <laughs> um, uh, and I remember saying to, to the gastroenterologist at the end of it, I said, how long has this been there? 
And he very casually said, oh, years? Yeah. Um, and apparently this thing was big, my own little monster lurking lurking in the dark. It, um, it, it was apparently, and I had given it every opportunity, every opportunity, because I had not been getting tested. So it had been sitting there growing for quite some time. Uh, I had the clouds lifted a little for me, even by the end of, of the week that I got that news, because I went back in for blood work. And the results of that blood work came back and said, there's nothing in this blood work to indicate that there's any cancer anywhere else in, in, in your body. And that was obviously the first worry was that this, right. this would have moved out of the colon metastasized elsewhere. Then I had a CT scan and I, I was actually, I was actually standing in, standing in line at the post office and the phone rang and it was them. So I'm, I'm in the middle of the post office saying, hello, hello. And they said, oh yes, we, we have the results of the CT scan. Okay. <laughs> um, all clear. And oh, that was, that was, you know, what said, uh, there's no evidence that it's got into the, into the lymph glands, which is the main concern with bowel cancer. No sign that it had metastasized anywhere outside the colon. And when they got the thing out of me, so a couple of months later, I'm in for what they're describing as routine surgery. I mean, it, you know, it's like it's, I talked to so many people at that time who said, oh yeah, my dad had it. He's, he's 20 years ago. He's fine. You know, um doesn't they, change it when you're there getting it they literally you know <laughs> take out take out thing and they cut here cut here glue there put it back in again it's it seems to be as simple as that um and while as i say i had given that thing every every chance to get nasty with me everything was precancerous or stage one that's amazing and nothing had gone into the into the lymph system. So I got very lucky. And I'm extremely aware that not everybody is, you know, Chadwick Boseman. And it's, you know, he's a perfect example because this this is no respecter of age. We tend mm. to think of it as something that should happen when you've reached my advancing years. He was what, 29, 30? Yeah. And one in a heartbeat, you know. Uh it's 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 awful and it's horrible, but, uh, but I was that lucky. So I didn't, I didn't have any, have to go through any chemo or anything like that. It was just, you know, booked in for surgery, surgery done, recovery from surgery. You know, that was just waiting for it, for everything to stop hurting. <laughs> um, um, and every, I've, you know, I, I've, I had CT scans at six months and I've had them again a year on, and I've just had, uh, uh, have them again at 18 months and, and regular visits, video visits now, of course, with my surgeon. And everything, everything's, everything's fine. Uh, and they will, they'll do the tests again in March next year, which will be two years on. And assuming everything's fine out of that, they'll leave me alone for the next three years, they promise. Um, yep. 
So I really, I really did get lucky. I mean, it, it sounds like you had a, a harder time. Uh, I, I, it was recovery for me um, because I had to do, I was 30 years old and had to have a full hysterectomy. And yeah. I got really lucky though, because it hadn't metastasized anywhere, but it was a rare enough that I'm, I'm chuffed that my tumor was so special. They took it to a conference. I wow. named it, I named it Bob, Bob, the tumor went on a tour. Um, but <laughs> I hope, I hope he got paid well. Uh, I, you think, no, I ended up paying out money, but no, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it was, hmm. it was great because I had my, my friends like you and David Tennant and, and, and Peter Cushing, who I have a mask of up there, but I had all of this to help keep me going. And it, it really helped get through, you know, it's like, I, yes. it, it, I, I laid up for three months and you can't I found, do anything. I found myself oddly listening to a band that I don't listen to very much. I, I, I like their work, but I don't go to them for casual listening very much. Band called Godspeed You Black Emperor. Ooh. Very dark, long, pieces but I, I found myself listening to quite a lot of them and because I was going in for my surgery in the uh, end of February into March March late March colonoscopy was the end of February last year and then uh, late March I took with me a, <laughs> a big fat book on the 1918-1921 uh, flu epidemic <laughs> you you were planning ahead <laughs> well it was coming it was weird because um we we had, we'd been to a convention in charlotte in february didn't really think about it okay didn't wear didn't wear masks nobody was doing that At shook that hands time, no. with everybody all of that came home and i was fine um uh, i cancelled uh, a show in Las Vegas only because, you know, surgery was being scheduled. Um, and then it got cancelled. And that was the first time I kind of thought, wow, what, what is going on here? Um, yeah. But obviously at the time, I wasn't worried about... You had more important things on your mind. <laughs> my, my focus was elsewhere, certainly. But the I, I went into hospital on Monday. Steph came with me. She stayed in the hospital all day. She was allowed to be in my room with me and they were, they were allowing one visitor per patient. She went home in the evening. She came back the following day and she'd been with me for about an hour and a senior a member of the nursing staff came into the room and said, oh, um, I'm terribly sorry, but you can't be here. Uh, just started doing that we were oh what why what they had changed their policy at midnight oh, um, wow. to say no visitors um and at the beginning of that week not not everybody in in the uh in 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 the hospital was wearing masks by the end of the week, everybody was, and everybody, when they came in to talk to me, apart, you know, apart from nurses who had to be close to me to do whatever they needed to do, were standing away. Everybody was putting gloves on and removing them and binning them when they went out. Um, and when I came out 
I, I was in on Monday, came out, I think, on Saturday. I suddenly emerged onto, you know, what appeared, appeared to have wandered onto the set of um, 28 Days Later or, or, or the, the early episodes of The Walking Dead or something. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a completely different world to the one I had left behind when I went into hospital at the week. So it was like that week was the tipping point between people not being very con overly concerned about this thing and suddenly, boom, it was, you know, uh, so what happens now? So we can't go anywhere? No. No. Really? <laughs> what do you mean? I can't. So we we had planned, you know, I planned, I planned a victory lap, you know, my, 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 my fuck cancer tour. We were, we, <laughs> we, we planned a, you know, we were, we, we were going to do a convention in Arizona and we were going to stay on in Sedona for, a, I'd found a really nice resort hotel, money, no object, fuck that. It's only money. Um, yeah. After you, after you've been through that, you don't give it to stay chance. there and, and lounge by the pool for a, a week. <sighs> nope. <laughs> wow. Wow. I, I will, um, I, I'm going to wrap this up, but I have to give you my, my, my funny colonoscopy story. Okay. Because the, the, uh, I think you'll appreciate this, uh, because the kind of cancer I had leaves you more apt to get colon cancer. And uh. I also have it run in my family. Yeah. So, which is good genes. Yay. I love it. Um, so I had my colonoscopy. Thanks, Mom and Dad. Yeah. Everybody. Thanks for giving me the best. Um, so I, I went in for the colonoscopy and for the first time ever, I woke up during the colonoscopy. Oh no. And I woke up, it was like a Cronenberg film. Yes. I woke up and I hear the doctor saying, but I want to take it out and I want to cut it out. And I'm just like, what are they talking about? What, what, what the fuck? You know, and I'm like, and I literally grabbed the nurse. And I pulled her down and I just growled out, I'm awake. You're not taking anything out without my and, and so they they went, oh, okay, shot. And I'm like, funk. So they had to double dose me. And I came out of it. And I'm like, what the hell happened? And it turned out they'd found a polyp. Yes. And it, that's what he cut out, but I couldn't have timed it better. Waking up to the words, I want to cut it out though. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. Well, they've, they found polyps in me subsequently and almost certainly the, 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 the tumor began life as a little baby polyp. And yep. if I'd been doing the sensible thing and being regularly tested, you know, they would have said, yeah, we found a polyp. We took it out. Nothing to worry about. Move on. You know, yeah. and it would, we'd, we'd never have got that. That's an extraordinary thing though. Fuck. I, you know, I just, I just read a thing. I think it's a, I think it's, I think it's another Trump book coming out, <laughs> which said that he was taken in for a routine colonoscopy and he insisted on doing it under local anesthetic because oh if, if they'd, if they'd put him under general anesthetic, he would have had to transfer power to Mike Pence. 
Yep. That or just sounds like something like that he would do. What are, you, what are you out for an an hour, two at the most? Yeah. But, um, but the idea for him that he would have to transfer power for the period of time that he was under anesthetic was a sign of weakness. And uh, so crazy. he wouldn't do it. Wow. Well, Doug, this has been fantastic. Oh, no, I, oh my God. Yeah. Well, to end, um, I wanted to ask you though, really quickly, where can we find you and see you um, upcoming? Um, well, uh, we, I, I, I'd started to get back on, on the convention trail uh, around May time when things were looking rather more optimistic. I just canceled the rest of my conventions for this year, which actually have all have, have moved to next year. Now. Yeah. <laughs> One was cancelled, which was Son of Monster Mania in, in uh, Burbank. And then I was booked for Monster Mania in Baltimore and Spooky Empire in Orlando, which was just uh, last weekend. So I, I just was looking at the numbers and I just thought, you know what? I don't, it's, I don't think this seems like a good idea. And I had done a convention here in Pittsburgh in, in uh, August. And I walked in on the Saturday morning. The place was packed, you know, which normally is great. great. Good. <laughs> we're all going to be busy and we're all going to do well. This is great. And everybody's here and is going to have a good time. And that's fantastic. But I'm looking around this room and 95% of people are not wearing a mask. And I think I think Robert, Robert England, and I were the only the only uh, guests not wearing masks. And I just my first instinct was to say, you know what, I, I'm going home. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it, too. It doesn't seem like a like a great idea, you know. I mean, I but um, so I I hope I hope I hope that conventions will be happening. Uh, you know, the, 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 the numbers will get under control again. There's, there are slightly optimistic signs again recently. So let's hope. But what, what I see around me is people keep trying to pretend that the There's thing has gone away and it hasn't. Yeah. And it hasn't, you know, so you know, I don't want to dive into political issues, but, you know, do the right thing. You know what the right thing is to do at this point. Um, do it. And, uh, you know, it'll it'll help everybody. So I hope that will be happening. I did do I did do it, make a brief contribution. I guess a cameo is the is the word for it to uh, a movie that was shooting locally. Uh, so it was very easy to do. It was a half an hour, hour's drive away from here, which was uh, a sequel to a movie called The Barn. So, oh, hey, I um, remember that. <laughs> the Barn 2. Um, uh, I think uh, I think Linnea Quigley and um, uh, Ari, Ari Lehman, I think it is. Uh, I think they're both in it Back too. It was just, just I... I I had a kind of long monologue story to tell. So it was kind of fun to do. Nice. So I guess that'll turn up at some point. The YouTube channel uh, will be continuing. Um, uh, the most recent thing I recorded, which I haven't published yet, was an EF Benson story. Um, 
who I'm starting to explore internally. He's an, another writer that got kind of neglected in the in the Spine Chillers series. Uh, uh, and, and I like a lot of his stuff, the, the Upper Room, which is a very creepy story of his. Uh, that'll be on the YouTube channel. And then my, my, my next plan with that is to start a serialization of Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, um, nice. The uh, Stevenson novel. Stevenson's a long time favorite author of mine. Um, uh, Treasure Island is one of my favorite books, bar none. Um, uh, so that, that will be coming up there. Um, and at the moment, every Thursday, um, you can catch down to hell live on Twitch. That's the, that's the new thing that's been happening. The, the streaming, the, the streaming Twitch show, which, which has been exciting where we, we do shows, uh, Steph co presents with me. Uh, when we do open forum evenings where it's just uh, me and me and her and um, David, the producer, that's through Horror Hub, which I've been I've been partnering a lot with Horror Hub and that's growing, um, growing a lot. And it's that's ex I'm excited being part of that. Um, so that's every Thursday, eight, eight o'clock Eastern time. And every other week we have on guests. So, so far we've had uh, uh, Josh Balls, who's also part of uh, Horror Hub. And uh, so kind of indirectly one of the producers of the show. Uh, people know him from the band Motionless in White. Uh, we had Mick Garris on. People will That's know great. his name from a lot of horror stuff. Um, uh, and he he was just great. And, He's he's just a, a lovely guy. Um, Scout Taylor Compton was was on. Uh, uh, Matt Montgomery uh, was a guest who people may know better as Piggy D from the uh, uh, bass player from Rob Zombie's band. Nice. And he's just written a lovely collection of scary poems for children. <laughs> uh, Fantastic. Uh, taking us back to Nightbreed, all my friends are freaks. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and then uh, uh, our most recent guest was, uh, was Robert Anglund. Oh, Robert. Um, oh, boy, he can talk. <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem as far as interviews go. Yeah, we only, uh, we, we had limited time with him. I think we'll get him back on at some point because we do go on. It's not just an interview, really, uh, you know, because it's me and I'm not really, you know, I'm it, the, the, the kick is out of, you know, people just seem to think it was, it was a great idea to listen to two old farts, <laughs> um, uh, you know, yammering on for, for, for an hour, but it's, it's a conversation that I'm looking for really, you know, rather than a, rather than a, a, a straightforward uh, interview. Cause I think that would just be kind of odd in a way. Um, I don't know when you're putting this out, but it'll be up uh, next month. Next month, okay. November. Yeah. Oh, well, then there's not much point in telling me telling you that tomorrow, as we're sitting <laughs> talking, um, which is uh, a few days before Halloween, our, our guest um, right before Halloween is Steve Gonzalez from uh, 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 Ghost Nation. 
nice. ghost hunters um uh nice and uh, he's just he's just also uh produced and directed uh a long form documentary which is worth a look i think um called the house in between oh nice um uh so that's all you you are a busy man so i i <laughs> I, I hope by the time this has time traveled into the future and <laughs> uh steve tomorrow is in the past <laughs> uh, i hope the show will still be happening so we we go out live on thursdays and then all the shows are available uh if you subscribe uh on demand so if you know you can go back and and look at the robert england show if you if you so wish it's, it doesn't cost very much and in fact if you're uh i think it's like five bucks to subscription to get to 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 watch those and in fact i believe if you're a an amazon prime member um you you get one free subscription so awesome well doug again thank you so much this has been absolutely fantastic and uh I will send you the link to this once it goes live and I hope you love it. Um, and again, you're a legend. Thank you so much. And I'm so glad you're healthy and well. And uh, again, you're amazing. Well, I say the same thing to you, Jessica. Um, thank you, sir. Congratulations on beating that. That's great. And, thank you so much. And this has been a pleasure. And same thank here. You. Thank you so much, sir. You have a great rest of your day. And uh, again, happy Halloween. <laughs> Halloween, <laughs> even though it will have happened by the time. It's true. It's all timey-wimey. <laughs> Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thank you for watching our show. If you like what you see, please subscribe to our Joe Blow Videos channel. Tell your friends who like this sort of content and turn on the bell to receive notifications for all of our latest videos. We're an independent company and we appreciate all of your support.